Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. In June 1950, the Daily Pentagraph newspaper in Indianapolis, uh, right outside Chicago, ran this headline. Search Skid Row flop houses for air to British fortune. Uh, as you read the article, you find out that the, they were looking for a particular man. The article says this. It says the flop houses and saloons of Chicago's Skid Row were searched Friday for one Stanley William McKenna Walker, 50, an Oxford graduate, graduate and heir to half of an $8 million English estate. The missing, per, the missing person's detail hoped that someone among the down-and-outers who line the curbs and sleep off wine binges in the cheap hotels, that somehow they would help them find Walker, son of a, of a wealthy British shipbuilder. All of his family, except Walker and his brother, were killed during the war in the Liverpool Blitz, and the brothers became the sole heirs. So there's this guy in Chicago who's living on the streets, He's homeless most of the time, he's poor, he has no money, but he is an heir to half of an $8 million estate in 1950. Now, $8 million in 1950 was a lot more money then than $8 million. Now, I know $8 million is a lot of money, but it was even more money then. So here's this homeless guy who has no idea that he's truly a millionaire. They, they finally found him later that year but he was dead in a doorway of one of those cheap hotels. How sad that Stanley Walker died never knowing who he truly, truly was, never knowing what he truly had access to. Unfortunately, too many Christians live in that same reality. We live our lives not really truly knowing who we are in Christ. We, we live our life as spiritual beggars, having no idea who God really says we are. And when we, we live that way, we miss out on the power and the freedom and the joy and the abundant life that God has promised us through his resources. And that's exactly what Paul is addressing in the opening chapters of his letter to the, to the believers at Ephesus. And we've been going through the book of Ephesians. Of course, we saw the very opening of Paul's letter and then Last time we were, we were met on a Sunday night, we, we looked at the chapter, verse number 3, and we, we saw an identity statement that Paul is giving these believers. And here's that identity statement. In Christ, I am a loved, accepted child of the Father, and who I am is who I am in Him. See, that's, that's who you are. That's not who you're trying to become. That's not what you're working towards. That's not what you're hoping to one day be or trying to achieve or trying to earn. That is who you are in Christ today. In 
Christ today, you are a loved and accepted child of the Father. One of the greatest things that can happen to a believer and a follower of Jesus is we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. And throughout this first chapter, Paul is teaching us who we are in Christ. Now, remember we talked the first three chapters, Paul spends a lot of time really building us up and telling us who we are in Christ and how loved we are and how accepted we are and how great God thinks we are. And then the last three chapters, he turns around and says, now because we're we're these things, here's how you're supposed to live. Not because God expects it, but because that's what we're to do as children of God. So we need to understand who we are in Christ. And we saw that in verse number three, but let's look at verse number three again. Ephesians 1 verse 3 is on the screen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. See, that's who you are already. You already, if you're a believer and you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you already are a child of God. You already have been blessed with all spiritual blessing in high places. So we need, if we, we need to understand what that is, we have to understand what a spiritual blessing is. And we need that definition of a spiritual blessing because for the rest of the chapter, Paul begins to tell us what these spiritual blessings are. So what is a spiritual blessing? Well, here's a definition for you. A spiritual blessing is an unending positional privilege of God's grace to those who are in Christ. An unending positional privilege of God's grace to those who are in Christ. Let's, let's break down this definition. There, it's unending. The, the, these things that Paul says we have, says about us as followers of Jesus, they are, they are eternal. You receive them the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior, and you're going to have them for the rest of eternity. They're not something that you can earn, and so they're not something that you can lose. You receive them freely, and you keep them for all of eternity. So these truths that Paul's going to talk about, they are true about you today. But they're true about you tomorrow. And they're true about you on Tuesday. And they're true about you next week. And they're true about you next year. And they're true about you for the rest of your life and for the rest of eternity because they are unending privileges God has given us. So these things Paul is saying about us are unending. So today, you're a loved and accepted child of the Father. Next week, you will be a loved and accepted child of the Father. Next year, you will be a loved and accepted child of the Father. Well, preacher, you don't know what my life's going to be like next year. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your life is like. Doesn't matter if you turn your back on church and leave God for now. I don't believe if you're saved, you can never do that. But it doesn't matter if you, you get into to deep sin or, or you find yourself in a place you never thought you would be. God uses conviction to bring those things back. But even if you're living your life apart from God, if you're a child of God, you are a loved and accepted child of the Father. But not only do you say these things are unending, these are privileges. These privileges are positional truths. That means these things are true about you because of your position in Christ. But they're not practically true in your life. So positionally, these things are true, but practically, they're not true. I'll show you what I mean. The first week we were looking through Ephesians, we we said that we were saints. God says that because we are children of God, we are saints. A saint is a holy, set-apart being. Now, so positionally, I am holy. You can talk to my wife and she will tell you practically, that ain't the case. Positionally, I'm holy. Practically, 
I got a lot of work to do. And that's okay, because so do you. Positionally, you're holy, but practically, God is working holiness out in your life as you walk with him. So practically, what is true about me positionally is being worked out in my life as I walk with God. These truths are about who I am in Christ. By faith, as we walk with him, these truths begin to be worked out in our life. So uh, here's what I'm saying. I am not as holy as, as Christ is right now. But I'm a whole lot holier than I used to be. I got a long way to go. But I sure have come a long way. I mean, I, I'm amazed every, every week. You know, one of the things, the reason I hate that, that you know, Sinner Saved by Grace song because as you know, you could see where I once was. If you could go with me back to where I started from, I know that you would see. And I'm like, if you could see where I came from and go back where I was, you wouldn't be here. Because I wouldn't be here. Because I know how bad I was. I know how bad I am. I'm not as bad now as I was. I'm not as good as I could be, but I'm not as bad as I used to be. And so as I walk with God, this positional holiness that God has given me, God works in my life and he, he molds in my life and he shapes in my life and through conviction and through, through different things God does in my life. He, he removes some of the things that, that don't make me as holy as I should be. And I, and I slowly, as I walk with God and being conformed to his image until I will one day be the image of Christ, but that day's not going to come until I'm dead. I will never reach sinless perfection until I see Jesus Christ face to face. And neither will you. Once you see Jesus Christ face to face, you won't sin anymore. Now, you should sin less now than you did when you first got saved. But you know, we, we get down on ourselves because we look at our life and we think, I'm just, I'm not as good as so-and-so. I'm not as good as Christian as, as this person. Here's the thing we got to understand. The people we're comparing ourselves to, they're probably worse than you, but they're just good at hiding it. But, you know, Paul even says, it's foolishness to compare ourselves about, against ourselves. It's foolish for me to, to look at somebody else and say, I'm not as good a Christian as them, or I'm not as, as righteous as them, or I'm not as holy as them, so therefore I'm not as good as them, and so God doesn't love me as much. Because God sees me, no matter, no matter what's going on in my life, God sees me as holy and righteous and blameless, and he's working in my life to work that out practically. So every day I walk with God, I get a little bit better. And they get a little better. We're going to have down times. We're going to have times we fall back. You know, with Fred being in the hospital <coughs> these last 40 days or something. Uh, now he's in rehab, so hopefully he'll be home this week. But those, those days he was in the hospital, he, he had some terrible days. He had some days where he didn't, under, he didn't know who anybody was. The infection was just raging in his body and his pain and the, the medication. He, really, he was just really out of it and thrashing and didn't really understand anybody. He had some terrible days. And the doctor told us he's going to have good days, but he's going to have bad days too. It's going to be like a roller coaster. He's going to get good and start having great days, and he's going to turn around and, and have bad days. We can't understand it. We don't know what's going on, but then he's going to bounce back up and have good. And they said, it's not going to be a straight shot up. It's going to be a roller coaster. And that's what our walk with God is. It's not a straight shot up. We'll have good times. We'll have times where we, we fall back. Times we get close to God. Times we drift away. But the point is, when we start drifting away, we always need to come back up and start walking with God again. So God works out those things practically in my life as I walk with him. And these truths, not only these truths are positional, these truths are privileges. That means you don't have to earn them. You don't have to work for them. They are freely given to you. You don't deserve them, 
And you can't obtain them by being good. There is not one thing you can do this week to earn the love of God. God's, there is no performance to merit God's grace. We have been freely given these things by grace through faith, and, and it is who we are in Jesus. And it's important we understand what these spiritual blessings are. Because in today's culture, especially our Christian culture, there's a lot of mistruth going around about what spiritual blessings are. So to understand what they are, we have to understand what they aren't. So let me show you a few things spiritual blessings aren't. Number one, spiritual blessings aren't material possessions. Regardless of what you hear some smiling preacher say on TV, regardless of what someone says that if you send them a $20 seed faith, God will use that to grow your finances beyond farther what you can believe. Spiritual blessings are not possessions. Now, the fact that we've been given spiritual blessings doesn't mean that you're going to have a nicer house. Spiritual blessing doesn't mean you're going to have more money in your bank account. Spiritual blessing doesn't mean you're going to drive a nicer car. Now, does that mean that God never blesses us materially? Of course not. God does bless us materially. But, and there are times that he does, and there are times that he doesn't. But spiritual blessings are not material possessions. And if you think they are, when you don't have the material possessions you think you deserve, you're going to get discouraged. When you don't have the material blessings someone else has, you're going to get discouraged. How come God's blessing them with a good job and not me? How come God's blessing them with a nice house and not me? How come God's blessing them with a nice car and not me? And so you cannot look at your material possessions and say, this is the, the standard that I have to view God's spiritual blessings on me. Though we are not blessed materially, we are blessed spiritually. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, Moreover, brethren, we want you to experience the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So turn over there. I want you to look. I want to read it to you. Look over in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's just a few pages back. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. You there? Say amen. All right, three of you are there. I'll wait for the rest of you to flip there on your phones. Why do you get your, get your Bible out? It's not up there. That's why I said flip to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, we do not wit the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction and the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to their riches and their liberality. So Paul says, he begins in verse number one by saying, I'm about to tell you how God has poured out his grace on the churches of Macedonia. But look what they have. How the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, verse two, how in a what? Great trial of affliction. God poured out their, his grace on them, but they were a great child of affliction. They continue, and the abundance of their joy and their what? Deep poverty. He says they're persecuted and they're broke. But they got the grace of God and they have the joy of God. Anybody feel broke today? Don't, don't view your spiritual blessing based on what you have in your bank account. These believers, they were experiencing the pouring out of the grace of God while in a great trial of affliction, and they had joy while in deep poverty. So Paul tells about the grace that was poured on, the, on this group that had affliction and had poverty. That doesn't go well with the televangelist trying to make you give him his money so he can have a bigger jet by promising you a bigger house. 
Doesn't go well with their message. Spiritual blessings don't come as material blessings, but spiritual blessings will give you joy in the midst of trial and affliction and poverty. So they are not material blessings. Next thing, they're not not material possessions. They are not a get-out-of-jail-free card. The fact that we've been given spiritual blessings does not mean you will never have conflict. It doesn't mean you will never fight with your spouse or your neighbor or your coworker or your kids. It doesn't mean you're never going to lose your job. It doesn't mean you're never going to have problems in your marriage. It doesn't mean you'll never have a wayward child. What, what some try to do is they say, since we already have spiritual blessings, that if you had enough faith, then you could get out of all that. Your faith in God should, should remove you from all persecution and all trials and all conflict and all difficulties. And if that's how we get spiritual blessings, then it's based on our performance. And it's against, our, it's against your performance to get them instead of God's grace to give them. What P- Peter said in verse number, 1 Peter 5, he said, Be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Do not think for a second, because God's promised you spiritual blessings, you're never going to have conflict. I'll tell you what you are going to have, an enemy. You have an enemy who is trying to destroy you. And he will send conflict, and he will send pain, and he will send difficulty. So don't look at your life and say, I'm having conflict, so I don't have spiritual blessings. There are going to be difficult times. There are going to be struggles. Here's the last thing spiritual blessings aren't. They are not your best life now. If this is your best life now, you're facing eternity in hell. Just blunt with you. If this is your best life now, your life to come is going to look real bad. This isn't my best life now. My best life is coming. My best life is when I close my eyes in death and open my eyes and see my Savior face to face. My best life is when I get my glorified body. My best life is when I get to to spend time with the one who who died on a cross and rose again to redeem me. So being in Christ doesn't mean that your team always wins. It doesn't mean that you're never going to get sick. It never means that you're never going to get discouraged. In fact, Jesus said that in John 16, 33. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world... You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So he says, in me you're going to have peace. Now, we've talked about this. If you're saved, are you in Christ? Yes or no? Okay. Coffee, somebody. If you're in Christ, if you're saved, are you in Christ? Yes or no? Yes. So you're in Christ. So he says, in me you'll have peace. But then he says, in the world you're going to have tribulation. How many of y'all are in the world right now? Every single one of us. We have peace, but we also have tribulation. But we have peace in the tribulation. In the world, in Christ, we have peace. In the world, we have tribulation. And you are in Christ as a Christian, but you're also in the world. Tribulation, the word tribulation there means to squeeze or crush. It describes the distress and despondency that we feel that comes out when life squeezes us. And we know what, y'all know what that means. Sometimes you feel like life is just crushing you and just the pressures of life and the difficulties and everything's just coming down on you and those emotions that ooze out, that's tribulation. So in the world, we are going to face that. But we are also in Christ, so we have peace as we face that. Doesn't mean the absence of tribulation. It means peace in 
the tribulation. Now, the day of no tribulation is coming. When I, well, again, when I see God face to face, my tribulation days are over. No more problems, no more mistakes, no more heartache, no more difficulties, no more people hurting me, no more me hurting. It's, it's done one day. But that, today's not that day. Spiritual blessing is not your best life now. Spiritual blessings are unending positional privileges of God's grace to those who are in Christ. So now we understand that. Let's move to the next section. Look at verse number 4 in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me turn back there. It says, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So out of these verses, I want to list some of the spiritual blessings that Paul says you have right now. Some of these positional, unending privileges that Paul says, because you're in Christ, these are what you have Right now, number one, we are chosen. In verse 4, he says, according as he hath chosen us. Now, last time we said that from verse 3 to verse 14, these, these verses from chapter verse number 3 to verse number 14, they are the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. They are the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament, and it is the the single longest sentence there. So this phrase, he hath chosen us, is the most important phrase in that entire sentence. So he hath chosen us is the most important phrase in the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. And it is an important phrase because of the sentence structure of the Greek. And so, real quick... We're going to talk about adverbs and adjectives and diagramming the sentences. And it's going to get boring because I hated that, but it's important to understand. So it's important to phrase because the word, the, the word there, according, in the Greek is an adverb. Now, an adverb is something that describes or modifies the verb. So according modifies the verb chosen. So according modifies why we are chosen. So what he is saying is we have all these spiritual blessings because of or since something has happened. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because Christ has chosen us. We have all these things, Paul's going to tell us, because God chose us. The basis of our blessings that we enjoy in Christ is based on the fact that he chose us. All of our standing in Christ is based on the fact that he chose us. So the adverb, uh, according, points back to verse number 3 and is important. But the Greek verb translated, hath chosen us, is also important. In this Greek word... It is, a, it is the only stand-alone verb in the entire sentence. Every other verb has a dependent clause on it. And if you were diagramming a sentence, what that means is everything below this hangs on this verb. Everything we're going to see hangs on why this verb is there. So what that means is I am forgiven because he chose me. I am redeemed because he chose me. I am adopted because he chose me. I have an inheritance in heaven 
because he chose me. So everything else he is going to say is rooted and grounded in the fact that God has chosen me. Everything else is based on that. I am a loved and accepted child of the Father. I am his and he is mine. And that is because God in his grace set his heart on me. It's not because of anything I've ever done, but because of everything he has done. One theologian said this, long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. That's important because I am a loved and accepted child of God, not because of what I did, but all because of what he did. I didn't earn it. I didn't earn my way into his love, so I can't earn my way out of his love either. I'll show you what Paul says in Romans 8. Turn over to Romans 8 because I want you to see this too. And I didn't put it on the screen, David. <coughs> so turn your Bibles to Romans 8. <clears throat> or click on your tablet to Romans 8 or whatever you do. You there? Everybody there? All right. What's the first word in Romans 8.35? Who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Not what? Who shall separate us? It's as if Paul is sitting down and he's thinking about this one day and he goes, Who, can, who is able to separate me from God's love? The word separate there means to cause, to create space between. So Paul's thinking, what is it that can put distance between me and God's love for me? And he, he runs down the list. So look, who can separate me from the love, from, separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or darkness, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Then look down at verse 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you a who? Are you a who? Are you a creature? Yeah. You, the word creature there means created thing. Are you created by God? So Paul says, who can separate me from God? And then he lists it and says, nothing, no creature can separate me from God. So nothing can separate me from the love of God, not even me. I didn't earn his love, so I can't lose his love. He didn't, there's no way for me to get out of it. Before God ever said, let there be anything, he chose me and he chose you. But in fact, he chose everybody. 2 Peter 3 9, the Lord is not slack concerning this promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God, before the foundation of the world, put his love on everybody. He has chosen everyone to be his child. Now, does that mean we have no responsibility in salvation? Since God chose me, I don't have to do anything because he picked me. No, of course it doesn't mean that. 
God did all the work when he came to earth, when he died on the cross and rose again to redeem us to God the Father. His grace did that. But he gave us free will to receive that gift of grace through faith in him. So he did all the work. He chose us to be saved. He chose us to be adopted. But he gave us a choice whether we would receive all these things or reject them. We freely accept his death, his burial, his resurrection, and nothing else as complete and total payment for our sins. Now, a lot of people, Calvinists mostly, will say that free will diminishes God's sovereignty. Matter of fact, me and Daryl were kind of discussing this this week. It's one of those things you don't understand. Does God know every, everyone who's going to be saved? Well, his omniscience tells us he does. But so if God knows everyone who's going to get saved and has chosen everyone who's going to get saved, then what do we do? What do we have to do for it? And why do we have to, why does he give us free will if he already knows what we're going to do? So a lot of people struggle with, well, his sovereignty and his omniscience and free will, free will kind of diminishes that because if he wants everyone to be saved, but not all are saved, then God must not be sovereign. God must not be all powerful. But the opposite is true. Opposite is true. God is so sovereign that in the scope of his sovereignty, he allowed free will, and, and that free will that he's given us does not affect his sovereignty. Here's what Hal Spurgeon explains. He goes, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are like a pair of train tracks. When you're standing on a set of train tracks looking down, you've got two rails. They'll, they're parallel. They never touch they never will touch. But as you look down the, the line, it seems like they touch. They don't, what's there when you're looking at them, they don't make any sense. But up ahead, they do touch. And so we've been, but we, when you stand on a train track and look at both rails, they're parallel. But then you look ahead and it appears that they come together. And so what, what he's saying there is in time, God's sovereignty and man's free will come together at the grace of God, where we accept by faith what he's done for us. So as I stand looking at, at those truths today, they seem like irreconcilable truths, but in time, God's sovereignty and my free will are woven together in the grace of an almighty God. But here's the point. Don't focus on debating the mystery of these truths. Rest in the security of these truths. If you are a follower in Jesus, you can rest that you were chosen long ago by him to be his child. You are chosen. Here's the second thing we want to look at. <clears throat> Not only are we chosen, we are adopted. Verse number five, having predestinated us to the adoption of children. Adoption is such a beautiful picture of what God does for us. Adoption is a legal procedure that establishes a parent-child relationship between two people who aren't related. It makes a legal, two, two people who are, not, who are not physically related by blood, it legally makes them related. And so in Christ, we have become part of a family that we didn't belong to. You were not born a member of the family of God, but by His grace... You've been adopted into his family. Do you know what adoption means? Look, I love my kids. I couldn't imagine my life without my kids. But when me and April had our kids, we got what we got. We were stuck with them. 
We didn't have a choice. We didn't get to choose, you know, what they looked like or what gender they were. We didn't get to, we, we got what we got, and it was the luck of the draw. When you adopt, you choose your child. You go out and you say, this is the one. Of all the kids in the world that need a home, that's the one I want. And that's what God did to you. He said, that's, you are the one I want in my family. We have been adopted into the family of God. In eternity's past, God set his heart on you. And being adopted, it speaks to the generosity of God. Did you know that in the United States, it is easier to get rid of your biological kids than it is to get rid of an adopted kid? If you, you have a biological kid, you can get rid of them kids pretty easy. You can take them somewhere, drop them off. You can drop them off at a fire station if you want to. You can, you know, it's kind of funny. I was reading, you know, Indiana, oh, we were there. It was a sanctuary place where if you had a baby and you didn't want to keep that child, you could drop it off at one of these safe locations, usually a firehouse, police station, library, somewhere like that. You could drop the baby off, no questions asked. they take the child, you'd go. Nothing, as long as you brought the child in healthy and fine and just gave it up, nothing was asked. One woman took her 16-year-old kid there and did it. She had trouble. I mean, but you can get rid of your biological kid. You adopt a kid, it's next to impossible to get rid of them. That legal binding agreement is stronger than a biological agreement. So the standing we have been given in the eyes of God means that we are inheritance to God. We are joint heirs with Christ. That means we have the same inheritance as Jesus, which means everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. But adoption also speaks to the intimacy of God. He says we are adopted to himself. God has adopted us to him. Look again in verse number 5. Having predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Adoption is designed to bring us to God so we can enjoy fellowship with God. God brought us to him so we could have fellowship with him. God didn't, in his sovereign grace, God didn't bring you to him so you could do something for him. You've got nothing God needs. God doesn't need you. God wants you. That's much better than, look, me and April, we talk all the time. She gets mad at me when I say it. I think it's very sweet. But, you know, we're talking, and she's like, you need me. And I'm like, honey, I, I don't need you. I can, I can cook. I do most of the cooking in the house anyway. I can clean the house fine. If not, i got kids that can do it. If not, I can pay somebody to do it. You know, I, 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 can, I can get by. I don't need you. I want you. To me, that's better. To her, it's offensive. To me, I think, that's sweet. I don't have you in my life because I need you in my life. I have you in my life because I want you in my life. And that's what God says. God says, I don't need you. I want you. So I have adopted you to myself. God adopted you to himself so you could be with him. In Romans 8, 15, it says, For you not received the spirit of slavery again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now that phrase, Abba, there, is not a, a word we use in the English anymore, but the equivalent today is Daddy. Daddy is an intimate word for a father figure. You know, you, people have different names for their, but it's, you know, you can call them pops or whatever, but it's that, that personal, intimate. And I'll show you what I mean. You know what I call my dad? Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy. I call my dad Jimmy. We're not close. He's, we, so 
I don't have that intimate relationship. So who's my dad? My dad's Jimmy. Who's my father? My daddy's God. It's that personal, intimate relationship. William McDonald said this. He says, while we hesitate to use such familiar English words when addressing God, the truth remains that he who is infinitely high is also intimately nigh. God loved you so much He set his heart on you before the world began to redeem you so you would be able to go into his presence and fellowship with him. God is big. God is holy. But God is approachable to his children. Third thing we are, number three, we are loved, accepted, and favored. Ephesians 1.6. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Today. Right now, if you're a child of God, you are loved by God, and you are as loved by Him as you will ever be because you are right with Him in Christ. You are accepted, and you are favored by God in Christ. You you didn't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to keep it. It is yours in Christ by grace. Today... You are blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen, we are adopted, we are loved, accepted, and favored. And these are unending positional truths given to us by the grace of God that can never be taken away.